Psalm 107, the first three verses. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now I want in particular to call your attention to these three verses this evening, but in a sense one cannot do that without at the same time calling attention to the entire psalm and to the message of the psalm as a whole. It is obviously and patently a hymn of praise, a song of thanksgiving and of worship and of adoration. Now, in the reading at the beginning, the uh, structure of this uh, psalm uh, must have been quite clear to all. It naturally divides itself up. But here in these first three verses, we have the kind of introduction. This man, as it were, is gathering together a great choir, which he is going to conduct as they sing this anthem of praise unto God. And he assembles together his, uh, the various members of his choir singing the various parts. He sends out a great invitation. He calls them to come together from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And he's going to ask them all to join together in giving thanks unto the Lord. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And at once he provides us with the reason why all these different people coming from different places should join together in this one great anthem. But then having done that, you notice he goes on to detail. He is not content with merely making a general statement. He wants now to prove his statement. He says that all the redeemed of the Lord are going to join together in this. And that in spite of the fact that their experiences in certain senses have been different. So he proceeds to give us four samples or illustrations of four different types of experience. You remember them, the first group of people who are to be seen wandering in a wilderness seeking for a city of habitation. The second group are those who are bound in affliction and iron. The third are those who seem to be pining away in ill health and on the point of starvation. And the fourth is a picture of those who are on the sea in great waters and in a terrible storm. And he gives us these detailed descriptions of these four types and their varying experiences. But in each case, you notice, uh, he uses the same language. He's got something to say, and he says the same thing each time about every one of the groups. In each case, he says, then they cried out unto the Lord in their troubles. And each time he's able to say, and he delivered them out of their distresses. So he invites each group by saying, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Then having dealt with his four types, his four illustrations, he goes on to show us God's dealings with these people now in general. And then after doing that, he ends off with a final word of challenge and of exhortation. Whoso is wise, he says, and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Now, that is a, a general analysis of this uh, great and most notable psalm. It's a typical example and illustration of Old Testament praise. It is, in a sense, a very characteristic psalm. Now, I'm interested in it this evening, and I'm calling your attention to it, because it does, at the same time, present us with a picture. 
of what we may describe as true religion. Every religion is not true religion. There is such a thing as false religion. And nothing is more important for us than that we should be able to differentiate between true religion and false religion. Now, as we study this psalm together, we shall incidentally be enabled to do that. And that is a very important thing for us to do. Here I say, the blessings that come upon those who are truly related to God are presented to us in this dramatic and in this pictorial manner. The whole theme is, as I told you from that last verse, that we should come to know and to understand the loving kindness of the Lord. And the man wrote his song in order that everybody might come to understand that. He invites all these people to sing this anthem of praise to God in order that those who are not praising God may be arrested. And they may ask the question, why are these people praising God? What reason have they for doing this? What is it about them that makes them do so? They don't do it merely for their own enjoyment, therefore. They do it also in order that they may be the means of bringing others into a like knowledge of the loving kindness of the Lord. Now then, here is a typical statement of the praise of the godly people under the Old Testament dispensation. But of course, it's not only that. It is also a picture and a portrayal of the same praise that goes up out of the minds and the hearts and the souls of the New Testament people. It's the same God in the Old Testament and in the New. The Old Testament saints are members of the same kingdom of God as the New. Our Lord himself said that those who enter the kingdom in the New Dispensation go into the same kingdom as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fathers, he says, belong to the same kingdom. We come into the kingdom under a new dispensation, but we come into the same kingdom. The blessings of the Old Testament, in a sense, are the same as the blessings of the New Testament. It's the same covenant of grace. It's the same gracious God dealing with us. And that is why Christian people throughout the centuries have found that there is no better way of expressing their worship and their praise especially than to turn to the book of Psalms and to read or to sing a psalm together. It's the same spiritual life given by the same God and leading us, I say, into the same eternal and everlasting kingdom. Now, in this particular case, there is no doubt that the psalmist had very clearly in his mind the deliverance of the children of Israel from captivity. The message of the Old, of the Old Testament can be summarized in this way. God's people are in relationship to God. And as long as they live a life of obedience, God will shower his blessings upon them. But he has warned them from the very beginning that if they fail to obey him, if they fail to keep in touch with him, he will turn his back upon them for the time being. They will be conquered by enemies. They will be carried away into captivity. They will be scattered out of their land, their home which is given them. And they will be fugitives and wanderers. They will be strangers in a strange land. He told them that at the beginning. And because in their folly they forgot him and disobeyed him and turned their backs upon him. That very thing happened to them. They knew what it was to be strangers in captivity. But there they cried out unto the Lord and he heard them and he brought them back. They were taken captive, you remember, some of them by the Assyrians, others by the Chaldeans. And carried far away from Jerusalem into Assyria and into Babylon. But those who cried out were brought back, a remnant returned. And there is no doubt that here in this psalm, this man has that very thing in his mind. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, he says, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands 
from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. But again, there is no question at all, but that that Old Testament history, that Old Testament picture, is a very perfect portrayal of the New Testament salvation. The children of Israel have been taken, have been brought into being by God and he's used them as an illustration and an example to the whole world of his way of dealing with mankind. So what we see happening to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a very perfect picture and representation of that which happens to the Christian in the New Testament. And it is in that way that I want to use this this evening. It's good for us to think of these things sometimes in the form of pictures. The doctrine is there simply and plainly and boldly in many places in the New Testament. But let's take these, this picture. Let's have a look at the gospel in the Old Testament. For it's there everywhere if you have eyes to see it. And you can see it, I say, in this delightful pictorial manner that impresses it upon the mind and enables us to remember it. Now then, there are certain great principles, it seems to me, taught here. The first is this. The primary and the fundamental note of Christianity, and therefore the chief characteristic of the Christian, is the giving of thanks unto God. Now that's my first principle. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them say so, says this man. And he exhorts them and urges them to say so because they have reasons for saying so, as I'm going to show you. But the first principle, I say, is to grasp clearly that that is, after all, the first and the chiefest characteristic of the Christian. This sense of thanksgiving and of praise unto God. Now, this is obviously a very important statement. It is certainly one of the best and the uh, briefest ways in which we can test ourselves in order that we may discover where we are. Let's be perfectly clear about what I'm saying. I am repeating that the first and the chiefest characteristic of the true Christian is a sense of gratitude and of praise unto God. Well, now then, I say, let us test ourselves by that. Are we conscious of that? What is a Christian? Well, obviously, a Christian must be a person who is conscious of a relationship to God. Now, you can't read your New Testament without at once coming to that conclusion. Indeed, as I've been already pointing out, it's the thing that stands out so plainly and clearly in the Old Testament. You know, according to the Bible, there are only two divisions of men. We are all of us either godly or else we are ungodly. It is either true of us tonight that the biggest thing in our lives is our relationship to God or else it isn't. Now, you go through your Bible and you'll find that that's always the way. What's the difference between Cain and Abel? What was the difference between Noah and his family and all the rest of the world? What's the thing that marks out Abraham? What's the thing that picked him out in that pagan atmosphere in which he was brought up? It was this relationship to God. He was a God-centered man. A man who relied upon God and depended upon God and had a sense of dependence and of gratitude to God. And I could take you in the same way right through all these Old Testament patriarchs and saints and prophets and all others and that is always the thing that differentiates them. They have this sense of God. And it's the thing that marks them out from everybody else. Well now if that is true even of the Old Testament, how much more so is it true of the New Testament? 
The first thing about a Christian is, by definition, that he is a man who believes that he is in this relationship to God in a certain way and for a certain reason. The first thing about the Christian is not that he lives a certain type of life and that he doesn't do certain things. The first thing about him is this, that he is concerned about God. And therefore the thing that is so obvious about all who are not Christian is that ultimately there is no thought of God in their minds, nor in their hearts, nor in their lives. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. The first thing I say about a Christian is that he not only is concerned about this relationship to God, in his heart there is a sense of gratitude, of thanksgiving to God. He's anxious to praise God. God is to him the Lord of his life. And he is conscious, I say, of this sense of dependence upon God. The sense of the goodness of God which he has. Listen to the psalmist saying, Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's Old Testament. Well, if that is Old Testament, how much more so is this true of the New Testament? And as you turn to it, you find that that is the great characteristic. It has often been said and said truly that the book of the Acts of the Apostles is the most lyrical book in the world. The thing that characterized the first Christians was that joy that was quite irrepressible. It didn't matter what you did with them. You could throw people like Paul and Silas into prison and put their feet fast in the stocks. But at midnight, this is what you'll find. You'll find that they were praying and singing praises unto God. It's a lyrical book. It doesn't matter, I say, what happened to them, nor what was done to them. There was this within them. Their hearts were ringing. They were praising God. And as you read the epistles, you find exactly the same note. The, the epistles have been written, in a sense, all of them, just to tell God's people that whatever may be taking place, they must still go on praising God. They must realize that they are to look upon these adverse conditions in the light of their new relationship to God. So the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Philippians, keeps on repeating the same thing. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says it again, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And why was the book of Revelation ever written? Well, my dear friends, it wasn't written primarily, let me assure you, in order that people might be able to work out the date of the end of the world. That's a very grievous misunderstanding of that book. The book of Revelation was written in order that God's people, who were passing through terrible persecutions and cruel adversity, might still be enabled to go on rejoicing. It's a book that is showing them the ultimate victory of the Lord over Satan and all the other forces. They are to rejoice. It was written for men who were then in trouble and it was meant to help them, not some people who were to live about 2,000 years later. And so it has been a help to Christian people in every age and in every generation. And if your understanding of the book of Revelations doesn't help you to rejoice tonight, you're misunderstanding it. Well, now then, I say that that is obviously the first and the chiefest and the most characteristic note of the Christian. He not only knows God and believes in God, he wants to thank God. He praises God. He's conscious of God's goodness. Now, you see at once what a vital and valuable test this is. Morality, good as it is, never leads to such a result. A moral man is a very good man. He may indeed be a very good man. 
But as long as he's nothing more than morality, he will never be a man who praises God. He may be very correct. He will be. He will be most punctilious. You may not be able to point a finger at him. There may not be a single blot in the copybook of his life. But there is this which is always characteristic of the moral men. He is never a man who warms your heart. And that is because his own heart isn't warm. There is no thankfulness there. And that is why you see an acute thinker like Matthew Arnold, who wasn't a Christian, was at any rate able to say this. You see, he defined religion, you remember, as morality tinged with emotion. He was absolutely right there in a sense. He at any rate saw the difference between morality and Christianity. There's no emotion in morality. It's cold. It's complete, perhaps. It's correct. Yes, but it's cold. There's no emotion there. The unbeliever, Matthew Arnold, can say, religion isn't like that. Religion is morality tinged with or touched by emotion. Even he, blind as he was, could see that as he read his scriptures and as he read the history of the church and as he knew something about the lives of the saints. My dear friends, it's impossible to be a Christian without emotion. Now, I'm not advocating emotionalism. I'm the last man in the world to do so. But I am again reiterating this, that if there is no emotion in your religion, it's not Christian. It's morality. The giving of thanks, the offering of praise, is the first and the chiefest characteristic of true religion, of Christianity. And as I say that it helps to differentiate Christianity from morality, in the same way exactly it differentiates it from philosophy. There are many philosophic systems, and many of them are very noble and very excellent. They have high ideals, wonderful thoughts. Yes, but you know, philosophy remains in the intellect. And for that reason, it likewise is always cold. Indeed, if a philosopher begins to display any emotion, his fellow philosophers will not be slow to criticize him. They'll begin to say that something's gone wrong with him. Uh, the whole art of the philosopher is to be detached, is to stand apart. He's the analyst. He looks on and he deals with categories and he works out his concepts. He must never be lost in it. If he does, well, then he sees to be a good philosopher. It is this cold, scientific, intellectual detachment. That's philosophy. And you see, it is in that way essentially different from Christianity. The glory about Christianity is that it takes up the whole man. It isn't merely the will as in morality. It isn't merely the intellect as it is in philosophy. And it isn't only and merely the emotion as it is in certain cults and false religions. No, no, it is the whole men. But the thing I'm out to emphasize here tonight is that this element of praise is the absolute essential in Christianity. A Christian is a man who, before everything else, is a man who is conscious that he owes everything to the grace of God. The Apostle Paul has put it finally for us in these words, I am what I am by the grace of God. He owes it all to God, and that is why he praises God. Oh, my dear friends, let us examine ourselves tonight. We are still at the beginning of this new year. And this is the one thing in life and in the world we cannot afford to take for granted. You know, it's possible for you and for me to have a religion in which we feel no sense of gratitude to God. My religion may be something that I, as it were, carry with me in a bag. My religion may be something uh, which is nothing more than a kind of self-admiration society. I'm glad that I do pay my respects to God. And I think I'm a good man because I do it. I'm really worshipping myself for being good and not worshipping God. 
Never let us confuse church membership with true Christianity. You can be a church member without being a Christian. And if your Christianity is merely a matter of membership of a church, and even your work in a church, uh, if it lacks this sense of gratitude to God, if it's what you are doing and what you are, rather than your praise to Him, well, it's not true New Testament Christianity. You can't get away from this. The Christian is a man who realizes that he owes everything to the grace of God in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And therefore I say it is the first test, the fundamental test. Is there praise to God in your heart? Do you feel like responding to the invitation and the appeal of this man? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Are you ready to say it? Is there any response in it? Are you regretting as I'm speaking to you that you don't praise him more? Are you sorry that you're not praising him more? Can you say, Lord, it is my chief complaint? That my love is weak and faint. Yet, I love thee and adore, oh, for grace to love thee more. Can you say even that much? If you can't say positively that you are praising God, can you say that you want to? Can you say that you bemoan the fact that you're not doing so more? I think even that brings you in, for that means that you are praising if you even want to praise. It is the first and the chiefest characteristic of the true Christian. It's not a philosophy he's taken up. It's not a morality that he's practicing. It's this sense that he owes everything all to God. But let me hurry on to my second principle. As that is the first principle, the second is this. That this is something that is true of all Christians. Now, I want to emphasize this. Let the redeemed of the Lord say, so says this man, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the land, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Now, this is a very important point. Here is a man who is inviting people from different portions and parts of the world to come together to do the same thing. In spite of all their differences, he is calling them together to unite their vices in the one anthem, in the one theme. Here is an invitation to all and sundry, as it were, to come together to do this universal thing. Now I'm putting it in that form for this reason. You know the modern idea about Christianity, about religion. We are all such great psychologists these days that we think we can explain away Christianity very simply and very easily. Oh, we say, of course, there are certain people who are religious, certain people who are Christian, and they are, well, because they happen to have been born like that, they're made like that. They're the religious type. Or if you like, they've got the religious complex. It's all right, they say, there are these different types. There are all sorts of different types of temperament. Some people are mercurial, others are very phlegmatic. Some are punctilious and perhaps over-punctilious. Others are careless and negligent, come day, go day. They say there are all these different types and some are interested in music, art, literature, politics. Oh, these various things, science. So we find, they say, that the human race is divided up into these different types and kinds, and amongst them there is this religious type. And they say the tragedy, of course, of the past was that the church used to teach that everybody should be religious. They didn't realize they hadn't the knowledge which we now have, which says that it's all right for some, but it's not meant for all. It's just for certain types of people. Now, this man, in sending out his invitation, gives the lie direct to this modern theory. 
He invites them from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. He says all these divisions and distinctions are completely irrelevant. They make no difference at all. He is calling men and women who come from entirely different backgrounds to join in the same praise. And that is the proud claim and boast of the Christian church still as it has been throughout the centuries. It doesn't matter what country a man comes from. It doesn't matter what is the color of his skin. It doesn't matter what his heredity is. It doesn't matter what his cultural background is. It doesn't matter what he is temperamentally, what he is psychologically. It doesn't matter what century he belongs to. It doesn't matter to the slightest extent what his actual experience may be. Still, the invitation goes out to all to come together and to unite in the same words and in the same anthem of praise. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Now, this is to me one of the most important principles we can ever grasp. You notice that I put emphasis upon the fact that it doesn't matter at all how different our experiences may be. Still, we come to the same position. There is no standard type of conversion. It doesn't matter at all what a man's life has been. Now, let me put it in this way. I have known what it is to meet people who are verily believed that only certain types of people needed to be converted. I remember once preaching an evangelistic sermon like this myself in a certain very religious and respectable town. And I was told that the comment that had been made by a certain minister afterwards was this. He said, you know, that's all right. I was then the minister of a church, a mission church, in a Dockland area in South Wales. And the comment was, now that sort of thing's all right, of course, in his own church. But it's not needed here. Indeed, I once heard of a lady sitting even in this chapel who said this. He said, this man preaches to us as if we were all sinners. The idea being, you see, that there are certain people who are sinners and, of course, they need to be converted. They need to be regenerated. But not everybody, not all. You see, in other words, they put a great division and distinction according to the type of experience we've been passing through. Drunkards, of course, they need to be converted. Adulterers must be converted. But nice and polite people who've always been brought up in a place of worship, they don't need to be converted. That's the doctrine. But it isn't the doctrine of the Bible. The doctrine of the Bible is that whatever your past, whatever your antecedents, whatever your father and mother were, whatever your grandparents were, whatever name you bear, wherever you've been brought up, every man and woman alive needs to be converted, needs to be born again. Universal. East and west, north and south. All these divisions and distinctions are completely irrelevant. We all of us become one when we become Christians in certain respects. Now that is this great contention which is put in this pictorial form as this man assembles his choir. But of course you see it very perfectly in the New Testament, don't you? Can you imagine twelve men more different than the twelve disciples? Look at the difference between a Peter and a John. John the mystic, the poet, the contemplative. Peter the daredevil, the activist, the courageous man, the physical man if you like. Then look at a man like Paul who is entirely different from all the others. Look at a man like Nathaniel, look at a man like Andrew, go through your list. Look at all these men. I say that if you merely apply the canons of psychology or if you make an analysis of them by your philosophy, you'd say, 
That all these men are essentially different, and they are essentially different. And yet you see, they're one in their message, in their praise. They're one in this anthem, in this choir. And it's not only true of them, it's true of the whole subsequent history of the Christian church. That is why the reading of biography to me is always such a tonic in this matter. Read the lives of these men and you'll find that they're men who are by nature entirely different. And yet they all come to the same place. They're all doing the same thing. Of course they're not made like postage stamps. But essentially it's the same experience. It's the same thing to which they testify. They join in the same answer. It would be very difficult to imagine two more different men than those two men who are partly contemporaries. Martin Luther and John Calvin. The explosive Luther, the volcanic Luther, the careful, precise, logical Calvin. And yet the two men join in doing exactly the same thing. And so I could give you the list of all these men who stand out in the history of the church throughout the running centuries. So let me put my second point again in this way. The chiefest characteristic of the Christian is that he praises God. It is the chiefest characteristic of all Christians, of every Christian. It doesn't matter what you are by birth and nature and antecedents. I say that if you come to God in Christ, there will be that in you which is in all other Christians. It brings us to a common denominator. It introduces a common factor. Well, now then, let me go on finally to ask this question. What is it that produces this unity? Here is a man inviting them north, south, east, and west. And he's going to ask them to sing exactly the same thing, the same word. What is it that leads them to do so? What is it that produces this amazing unity? He gives us the answer himself in these first three verses. The first thing is the character of God. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. It is the goodness of God. That's the first thing that leads these people to do the same thing. You see, we don't start with ourselves in Christianity. We always start with God. And it is because people today are so fond of starting with themselves and forgetting God that they lack this unity. But the psalmist puts it in the right order. He starts with God. And this is his contention. The moment a man, he says, knows God and realizes something of who God is and what God is, he will praise him. Because he is good, because of the character of God. My dear friend, if you and I are not praising God as, he, as, he, as we should tonight, there is only one reason for it, and that is that we don't know him. Do you know what's happening in heaven at this very moment? The brightest angelic spirits are there praising God. They are ascribing praise and honor and glory unto the Almighty God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All those angelic choirs are praising God. Why? Well, because he's God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everything in nature, if we had but eyes to see it, is declaring the glory, the wonder, the greatness of God. And you see, if mankind had not fallen and had become subject to sin, the whole of mankind would be praising and would be worshipping God. God made us in order that we might do so. And while man was in the right relationship to God, he did do so. My dear friend, this is as important as this. Do you know that if you ever find yourself in hell, it'll be for this reason, that you haven't praised God? Now forget all about sin for a moment. Forget all about yourself and your life. Here's the first thing. 
Are you praising God? You were meant to. You were created in order that you might do so. God is to be praised because he is what he is and because he's God. And I know of no more terrible sin tonight than just failure to praise God. And let me put it bluntly, even at the risk of being misunderstood. The reason why the New Testament gives us the impression that the proud, self-righteous Pharisee is the most hopeless person in the universe tonight is just that. The self-righteous, self-satisfied person, according to the scripture, is an infinitely greater sinner than your drunkard or your prostitute. And for this reason, that there is no atom of praise to God in his life, he's entirely self-satisfied. He spends the whole of his time praising himself. Look at our Lord's picture of it in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Listen to that Pharisee. This is what he says. I thank thee, O God, for what? Well, that I am not as other men are, that I am so wonderful. He doesn't praise God because God is God. He praises God because he is good. He himself is good. He fasts twice in the week. He gives a tenth of his goods to the poor. He's not like this publican, this extortioner. He's a good man. He thanks God for that. And of course he's not thanking God at all. He's thanking himself. He's telling God about himself. He asks for nothing. He thanks for nothing. The most terrible sin, therefore, is respectability. Our reliance upon your religiosity. Our reliance upon your morality or upon your right thinking. Upon anything but the grace of God in Christ. God is to be praised, I say, because he's God. And if a man isn't praising God, that is the essence of sin. He's not ascribing the glory unto God which is due to him because of his majesty, his might, his dominion, his power, his Godhead, it is eternity. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. My dear friend, it is because you and I don't realize this goodness that we fail to thank him. He sendeth his rain upon the evil and the good, and causeth his son to rise upon the just and the unjust. That's God. The God who sends the seasons one after another and who fructifies the earth, who's blessing men in spite of their sin. That's God. And if we knew him, we'd praise him. He is to be praised because he is good. But he gives us another reason for praising him, and that is that his mercy endureth forever. Which means this, if I may put it hurriedly, that though we haven't praised him and we don't praise him as we ought, he hasn't finished with us. He hasn't turned his back upon us. He has looked upon us with mercy and with pity and with compassion. His mercy endureth forever. Look at it with the children of Israel who turned their backs and went away from him and forgot him and put up other gods and insulted him by worshipping idols. Why didn't he blot them out of existence? There's only one answer. His mercy endureth forever. He bore their evil manners, we are told. But what am I speaking of? If you would know this mercy of God, look at Christ. Look at the babe of Bethlehem. Look at the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. His mercy endureth forever. Yes, and how well it's put here for us. We are going to deal with it again, God willing, in detail. But let me summarize it this evening as he summarizes it here in these first three verses. The mercy of God is seen, as I say, in the fact that he even looks upon us at all. We don't deserve that much. If we had our deserts, we'd all be blotted out. But God continues to look upon us and upon our world. 
And then he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the land. What a perfect statement of the gospel. He says that we have been redeemed out of the hand of the enemies. Out of the hand of our enemies. Oh, that just means this. That we all have found ourselves in a condition of distress in this world. We shall see as we go through this psalm, you've heard it already in the reading, it doesn't matter whether these people are wandering in a wilderness or sitting helpless in chains in a prison or dying upon a sick bed or reeling and staggering like drunken men in the midst of a storm at sea. This is true of all of them. They cried out unto the Lord in their troubles. They're in distress. Things have gone wrong. They're helpless. They're hopeless. They can't do anything. And in their utter helplessness, they remember the God they've forgotten and cry out to him for mercy and compassion. And he hearkened unto them and delivered them out of their distresses. That's the thing that's common to every Christian. And you know, my friends, you can't be a Christian without knowing that. A Christian is a man who has known himself in soul distress. A Christian is a man who's become desperate about himself. Don't misunderstand me. If you've not become desperate about yourself, I have no right to tell you that you're a Christian. A Christian is a man who's become so desperate about himself and about his life that he doesn't know what to do. As we are told here, he's at his wit's end. He's in agony. He doesn't know where he is. He's been turning over new leaves. He's been making new year resolutions. He's been trying to do good. He's been increasing his subscriptions to good causes. He's been fasting, sweating, praying. And still he doesn't know. He's lost. And in his utter hopelessness and helplessness, he's cried out unto the Lord. That's the Christian. A Christian is a man who's tried everything and exhausted everything and found them all to fail and then finds the all that he's been seeking in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A Christian is a man, I say, who's become desperate and hopeless about himself, who realizes that he can't save himself, and who delights to hear the message that God has so loved him that he sent his only son into the world to rescue him, to die for him, to deliver him, and to reconcile him to God. He delivered them out of their distresses. He has redeemed us. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemies. I'll describe the enemies again, God willing. But we know about them, don't we? Lust, passion, jealousy, envy, avarice, hatred, malice, spite, uncleanness. Foulness, perversion, there they are, the things that get us down and hold us down captive. And a man can never get out of them. As I say, your most moral man is perhaps most tightly in the grip of the enemy. The devil has him most securely in the fetters of self-righteousness and self-satisfaction. There are the enemies, and God delivers us out of them. Every Christian has that experience. I don't care what his sin was. I don't care what form. I don't care what his temperament. I don't care what his nationality. If he's a Christian, he's a man who's been desperate. And he's a man who's found salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So that every Christian can join in the same anthem because he's praising the same God who is good, whose mercy endureth forever, who has redeemed him, yes, and gathered him and brought him to this large and wealthy place in which he has a new nature and a new life 
and a blessed hope and the spirit within him leading him and guiding him. Power to overcome sin hath gathered them together and is leading them together in the direction of their everlasting and eternal home. That's Christianity. And nothing less than that, my friend. Nothing less than that. A Christian is a man who knows that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for him upon the cross, that he is hopeless. He knows that he is a child of God only in and through Christ. He owes it all to him. So he gives him all the praise. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Have you said it? Have you praised him? If you haven't and you've seen the truth about God and his goodness and his wonderful redemption tonight, praise him here and now to yourself. Praise God. And then tell others about it. Because if you believe what I'm saying, you'll want everybody to know it. You'll see that they're in the same desperate position and that nothing can ever deliver them but this. You'll praise God alone directly. You'll tell others about it. And you'll try to bring them likewise to join with you in this same glorious privilege of being in this choir of the redeemed here upon earth, mingling our vices with the choir of the redeemed above, singing the praises of him who once was slain and hath redeemed us to God the Father. My dear friend, Consider these things as this man in the psalm exhorts you to do. And then begin to give thanks unto the Lord. Because he is so good. Because his mercy endureth forever. It's endured until this night. He's kept you alive. He's giving you another opportunity. His mercy endureth forever. Realize it, believe it, and begin to give proof of it by praising him with all your soul. Amen.